On Christmas Day, the motion picture The Aviator opens nationwide. Directed by Martin Scorsese and starring Leonardo DiCaprio, the film examines the larger-than-life figure of Howard Robard Hughes, Jr. Howard Hughes was among the most colorful and influential Americans of the 20th century. The film is generating interest as an Oscar contender and has already been nominated for six Golden Globe Awards. The film is based in part upon George Merritt's book, Howard Hughes, Aviator. Mr. Merritt was an experimental test pilot for the Hughes Aircraft Company, and after attending the prestigious U.S. Air Force Test Pilot School at Edwards Air Force Base, he flew rescue and combat missions during the Vietnam War. While at Hughes Aircraft Company, he met many aviators who had direct contact with the man, as they often called him in previous decades. The book paints a vivid picture of Howard Hughes from that aviator's perspective, and we're pleased to speak with him today. George Merritt, welcome to Radio Parallax. Yes, thanks for having me on. Mr. Merritt, your book opens in 1976 uh, when you met Jack Reel, a man who uh, was with Hughes at his mysterious um, death. People were telling stories at that uh, at that convocation and noted that at one point one of the pilots said, you know, someone should really document all those obscure stories before they're lost forever. And he was looking at you when he said it. So did you take this upon yourself 28 years ago? You know, it kind of set the seed. I was always interested myself in uh, in the stories that I heard. Howard had not... Uh, then when I went to work with the company, he had not been seen on the flight line probably in a good 10 years. However, some of the mechanics that worked on my airplanes had known Howard Hughes, worked on his airplanes. There were some of the older test pilots, as I indicate in the book, that had flown with Howard when Howard was flying or, or Howard was a passenger with them. Same was true with engineers. And everybody was kind of, it was a private company, so you were supposed to keep quiet about it, not to speak to uh, outsiders. But they were all so interesting, and, and I, I like nothing better than a good story. So it kind of set a seed in my mind that someday down the road I'd like to, uh, uh, to write a book about it. I did write a book about my combat experiences in Vietnam about a year and a half ago, and then I uh, started on this uh, Hughes activity. You got kind of in a writing mode. Yes, I am. And, and, and matter of fact, I have another one that I'm looking for a publisher. It's about my own personal experiences as a test pilot with Hughes Aircraft Company. So that would be my third book. Well, excellent. Uh, a quote from page 72 in your book, you were referring to an idea for a kind of, uh, I guess for lack of a better description, kind of a city bus in the sky. And you noted the quote, the plan was weird enough that one might assume that Howard Hughes had been involved. And uh, I guess I guess even at the Hughes Aircraft Company, there was a there's sort of expect the unexpected view with about about Mr. Hughes. That was uh, you just never knew what to expect with him. There was nothing ever routine when you worked with uh, with Howard Hughes. He always had unique ideas, and I think that probably was his strength was that he was really a genius at kind of thinking outside the box before anybody ever used that uh, that expression. And my hope uh, is that he will be remembered more for his aviation accomplishments as a result of the movie and my book than he is for the way he ended up as a, as a recluse, a drug-addicted billionaire. Well, Hughes is in the Aviation Hall of Fame. Uh, what would you consider that would be his greatest contribution to posterity from the aviation perspective? I think uh, his best aviation accomplishment was his round-the-world flight in 1938. Uh, in 1935, he set a world speed record and then in both the 1936 and 37, a transcontinental record, meaning that he flew solo, nonstop, 
from Burbank to, uh, to Newark. Uh, then in 1938, he went round the world, this time not solo. He hired two navigators and a flight mechanic and also a radio man to go with him. It was a brand-new airplane, a Lockheed Super Electra. And remember, this was one year after Amelia Earhart was lost right. trying to go around the world and was lost in the Pacific. So Howard really planned this flight quite well in the order of, of even uh, Lindbergh, who planned his flight uh, obviously quite well. And so I think <clears throat> his ability to accomplish that flight in uh, three days and uh, 19 hours was, in fact, his best aerial accomplishment. And that led into air transportation as we even think of it today. Uh, the following year, 1939, is when Hughes bought part interest into TWA. Uh, by the late 40s, he had controlling interest, owned up as much as 78% at one time. And so he was really on the forefront of, uh, of air transportation with the uh, design, not really the design of the Connie, but he came up with the specifications. Lockheed built the airplane, and now for the first time in the mid-40s, you could go nonstop as a passenger across the United, United States in about 12 hours. And, of course, now we're in the jet era. And right. Hughes had a part of that, too. So I think we can thank Howard Hughes for his foresight in aerial transportation. So when we, when we take a, a cross-country, even a cross-continental era, or jump the Atlantic Ocean, we, in, in a way, have Howard Hughes to thank for part of that. We do, and we, t we take it for granted. I, I never uh, amazes me how many people are sitting there and not looking out the window when you have a window seat. That is right. such a gorgeous view to look at our country as you uh, spend only five hours going across in a, in a jet. And I'm, I, don't, uh, I don't read much on the airplanes, and I don't watch the movies, but I sure look out the window, and I'm just forever amazed at our big country and what it took to make it so easy to cross. I'm with you. I can hardly, I can hardly keep my eyes off of it. I understand that his, his racer, with which he set speed records, influenced a lot of the fighter planes also in World War II. Yes, you know, he had a, a very unique idea with a retractable gear, which we obviously take for granted now, and flush-mounted uh, rivets. And he had a radial engine, but a very close cowling. Uh, up until that time period, airplanes with the radial engines had just a huge nose and so much drag uh, that they could not go very fast. So by incorporating all of those features in an airplane, he set a world, uh, world speed record uh, with the airplane, as I mentioned, in 1935. And there's some uh, consideration that the Japanese took photographs of his airplanes, and that was kind of the image that they used for making the, uh, the Zero that I, was used in World War II. So yeah, I heard it, that. It was a headliner airplane. Well, Neil Conan, uh, when you were interviewed on Talk of the Nation Tuesday, said that Hughes was a great pilot. Uh, you agreed. I think you had to agree, but and because he was so often described that way by the people whose anecdotes you collected. But in those recollections, he was an amazingly awful pilot too. Sometimes, can we can we first talk about about Hughes as being a crack pilot? You know, for example, when he set the world speed record, obviously to set a world speed record is, is a, a great aerial accomplishment. But he continued to fly until he ran out of gas, and so he couldn't make it back to the field. He landed dead stick in a beet, in a beet field. Uh, it damaged the airplane, didn't hurt himself, but, uh, you know, he just took it. He just seemed to be uh, fearless or reckless, maybe even a, a better word to use for for him as an aviator. He just didn't seem to know boundaries or limits. And again, that's a strength uh, because he was out there setting records. But it also became a defect in his personality that he didn't rein himself in a little bit and live for, to fight another day, so to speak. 
Well, I, I do have a private pilot's license, Mr. Merritt, and I was, I was, in reading some of the bad examples in your book, I was, I was really blown away that you, you mentioned running out of gas. He, uh, he tore the flaps off a plane when he was ignoring someone's instructions as to how to not go too fast. He would just fly into crowded airspace, ignoring what air traffic control had to say. Um, he cut people off who were landing ahead of him. I mean, like, as a pilot, what, what do you say to that? I know, and, you know, that's just amazing for, because I grew up just like you did. I grew up in the uh, military aviation where there's all kinds of rules, regulations, and procedures. And and now in our post-terrorist activity, we even have more rules and regulations. So it's just hard to believe someone, uh, you know, could have uh, flown like that. Matter of fact, one person who read my book said, I'm surprised he wasn't killed. Uh, he, he, he should have been for all of the mistakes that he made in aviation. He was very fortunate to have, have lived. But he was a stick-and-rudder guy. He, was, he grew up flying and when airplanes were all about the same. There wasn't a lot of control towers. Certainly wasn't radar control and flight plans. And, and you could just kind of take off and fly at that time period. And he just continued to use the same techniques that he first learned. But it seems though, in in the anecdotes, some of the some of your uh, the people you interviewed said, "Geez, he was very smooth. His landings were just terrific. He was a very good pilot." And others say, "Man, I was just and the, I thought he was not going to make it. I thought he was going to hit the end of the runway." <laughs> I know that he was kind of a, a strange person from that point of view. I might add that in my research, um, I have counted up the number of accidents he had. By my count, it's eight automobile and aircraft accidents. And the, in particular, the automobile accidents were at a time period when there was no uh, seat belt. So yeah. if you hit a telephone pole or tree, you know, your head hit the windshield, maybe went through the windshield. So he ended up with a lot of, of head injuries, which I think contributed to his, his eventual downfall. His worst aviation accident was 1946 when he flew his twin-engine XF-11 reconnaissance airplane. On its first flight, uh, he ended up with uh, aircraft problems because of, of miscommunications with him and some of his ground people, and ended up uh, crashing the airplane into two homes in Beverly Hills. It's covered quite well in the, in the movie. And so he was critically injured, internal injuries, external bad burns. He was on morphine for the 35 days that he was in the hospital. When he got out, they moved him over to codeine and he never got off the codeine the rest of his life, never went through a drug withdrawal right. programs. And I think the combination of the <clears throat> head injuries and also uh, this one severe accident with now drugs, I think that's what kind of turned him downhill. From then on, uh, he was not a very good aviator. He was not very good in much of anything he accomplished. However, he continued to, to make millions of dollars and ended up you know, worth more than a billion dollars when he died. One thing he's famous for, which turns up when you read about him as a movie producer or a tycoon, is that he was always changing his mind and driving everybody nuts. You know, he was. He was a per perfectionist, a uh, very detailed person. Again, it was his strength and his weakness, because when he did get something to work, it worked quite well. Uh, but it was very difficult to work with him, because he micromanaged it. He was. These were huge projects sometimes, uh, not so much in his early days of aviation, but as he got into the flying boat, the XF-11, making movies, dating the starlets, uh, owned TWA, it was just w more than any one person could ever keep track of. And, and so he just lost control of, of some of these. He'd work in one area for a month and then go to another area for a month. And meanwhile, uh, the projects were not being completed. So it, it ended up being a disaster in many cases. 
And you tell and you tell people, don't call me, I'll call you. So people would be literally hanging by the phone for months. That's right, and nothing was accomplished, or he'd come in and, and change things. He also had a habit of coming into Hughes Aircraft Company at night. He'd fly in, land his airplane, get in an old Chevy that he had parked on the other side of the runway, drive over to the plant, and of course there was swing shift operation, sometimes 24-hour operation, but all the managers were gone. So he would go in and talk with the workers and tell them to change this, to change that, and uh, then the management would come back the next morning and find out everything had changed from what they had, had set up. And so that's obviously a disaster if you're a manager trying to work under those conditions. Right. He, uh, he often seemed to be like a, a kid with a new toy. He'd be intensely interested in something at first, whether it was uh, one particular movie starlet or a new airplane. Um, with his planes, people would describe how he would fly a plane, then become disinterested, but then specifically say, I want this maintained exactly so in such and such a place. That is, that is true. And, and matter of fact, uh, there's a fellow who lives up in the Sacramento area um, by the name of Bruce Burke, who was, uh, I think he's 87 now. He was the caretaker of all of these airplanes that were parked uh, all around the country. Uh, he worked for Howard for 39 years, went to work when he was, uh, I think, in 1937. Uh, when he first went to work and was an engineer and so Hughes liked him they flew together many times he even had Howard's logbook for many many years but he was in charge of the crews that kept these airplanes in flying shape they were called the rust watchers because uh, the mechanics would sit with an airplane sometimes for years and they'd go out and run the engines taxi it around a little bit make sure the tires didn't go flat keep it ready to go in case Hughes ever came back and actually flew it many cases he he never did so it was that was the kind of jobs that uh, that they had there's a couple things in your book I've, I've never seen anywhere else you had a very surprising memo that uh, mentions in, in uh, one of his uh, one of his executives mentioning who is to have access to Hughes aircraft and they note uh, in the first paragraph that apparently the Hearsts had had Hughes aircraft planes at their disposal. Was was Howard buying some good press with the Hearst? You know, I think that's exactly what uh, what he was was uh, was doing um, because he was concerned about uh, the press and how he was carried. So uh, they it was Hearst Castle here in in California, not too far from where I, I live at San Simeon, and they had a small little runway there, and wasn't that far from San Simeon to down to Los Angeles, and so. Uh, he made uh, Howard made uh, planes available for a lot of a lot of people, a lot of movie stars. Uh, one of my friends flew Frank Sinatra a couple of times, and so it wasn't uncommon for people to get a free ride on on Hughes's airplanes. Many and most of the time he wasn't flying it, but they were airplanes he owned. He had the pilots, he paid for the gas, and and um, it was his show. You mentioned also in the book that, that Jack Reel, a man who was with Hughes at, at the very end, had tried to save him from the gang of aides that he'd had around him. A lot of po- folks are familiar with that story about Hughes as a recluse. Uh, you noted they were usually young Mormon men and that he was ill-served by them, but you don't go into a lot of detail about, about that. Uh, can you tell us more about that, that sort of mysterious aspect of the, the people he had around him? Yes, I can. Uh, just basically, when Howard was uh, young and in the early aviation uh, era, uh, he hired extremely good people. That's that's certainly a, a sign of good management is to be able to hire good people and perform well for you. As time went on, I don't think he did as well. When 
he was actually in Vegas two times. Most people know about him from 1966 to 70 when he bought all the casinos and the airport and the TV station. But he was actually spent quite a bit of time in Las Vegas in the early 50s. Howard didn't like to hold office hours. He was his own man. He'd rather actually work at night. And so Las Vegas in the 50s kind of fit his, his lifestyle. Uh, but he was worried about the people that he would hire as his kind of aides, bodyguards, business managers, who now had to kind of go around with him. Uh, and so he hired some Mormons because they didn't drink, didn't smoke, didn't gamble, and thought he could, he could trust them. And early on, they did, in fact, work well for him. As time went on, they, that did not work quite so well, particularly uh, in the last years of his life. The last, oh, ten years of his life, he moved from country to country, uh, number one, to try and get drugs, number two, to avoid taxes, number three, to keep from being presented with lawsuits and being served. And so he had this entourage around him who saw him kind of going downhill because of the drugs. And they wanted lifetime contracts, meaning uh, they wanted to be paid, uh, get a salary even after Hughes died. And so he didn't want to give lifetime contracts, and they kind of isolated him. Now, this Jack Reel we were talking about has written a book that he Mm self-published called The Asylum of Howard Hughes. Mm -hmm. And he goes into great detail about what happened during Hughes in those latter years and how he was treated by that group of people. So he covers that story as a first-person story better than I, than I can. But I heard the stories uh, from Jack. He's 89 years old, not in very good health. He's gone downhill quite a bit since I uh, interviewed him earlier on. He took a fall, and that's always bad for elderly yeah. people. That kind of hurt him. What happened was that the, the uh, Mormons that were around him uh, prevented any message from coming into Hughes, and they prevented any messages that he had going out. So they isolated him. They put him, he created the asylum, and he couldn't get out of it. We're speaking with George Merritt, author of Howard Hughes, Aviator, uh, a book filled with numerous uh, numerous and amazing little, uh, little stories. You cite, um, Mr. Merritt, one example of gifts he gave reporters. He'd give gold lighters, matching cigarette cases. But I think my favorite anecdote in your whole book describes how, quote, Unlike other pilots who used aeronautic charts for navigation, Hughes just used regular auto maps that were given free by oil companies. I know. That's where Hughes was, was such a, a kind of a controversial, unusual figure, because in one sense he was really quite generous, and other cases he was quite tight. I, I mentioned also in there about these old Chevys that he had and how he would drive around the Los Angeles area, and they were old Chevys because he thought people wouldn't sense that he was... Uh, uh, a wealthy individual, so he wouldn't be ca- kidnapped or robbed. Uh, but by the same token, he rather than stop and fill the tank with gas, he'd he'd drive it till it was practically empty uh, to get it back to the plant because they could get gas cheaper and would gas it up. So right. It, it was just so unusual. You don't usually. I kind of uh, call him a dumbbell type of of a person, where where he's really heavy on the good end and heavy on the the bad end, and not a lot in the middle. Most of us are, are not dumbbell people. We're more middle-of-the-road people. We may have a, a couple good features and a couple bad ones, but most of us are in the middle. Howard was a dumbbell person. I, I remember when Hughes was alive, there's a quote from him that, that I still ponder, and he said, I'm not just a paraphrase, but he said, people call me eccentric because I have enough money to do whatever I want. If you had enough money to do whatever you wanted, they'd call you eccentric too. 
I think there's a degree of, of truth to that. Uh, I think we've heard on the news here just recently a man who, what, made $300 million in a Powerball lottery or something. It sounded like his, his world had, you know, kind of really come apart since he got that, uh, that wealth. Uh, so we all think we'd like a little bit more money, but uh, in reality, uh, you can end up with very bad times with, uh, with a lot of money unless you know how to handle it. Well, it seems he became CEO at 19. No one, no one ever stepped in to t- tell him no, and he seemed to be a bit of a dictator. You know, and, and that was kind of sad. His mother died when he was 16. His dad died when he was 18. He had no brothers, no sisters. So he was kind of forced to take over at that, uh, at that, at that point if he, if he wanted to, the company. And so he really was not interested in uh, his dad's company, which was called the Hughes Tool Company, Dad had designed this drill bit to be used for oil wells that was world class, and so this company that um, that Howard inherited made millions of dollars even during the depression, and so he was uh, free to you know spend whatever he wanted with no governor uh, to say no, Howard, that's too much. Most of us, I think, all of us in our our lives, we have many people around who would step in and uh, and control us if we got too far off base, but. Hughes did not have a person like that. Well, you, you've had a chance to see uh, the movie, Mr. Merritt. Do you feel it's true to the Howard Hughes you pieced together from your fellow pilots and mechanics? You know, I did see the movie. I got a, a because of my connection with this fellow who uh, is one of the producers. I got an invitation to a special screening a little over two weeks ago, and um, down in Hollywood. And DiCaprio was was actually there. And after the movie, uh, they had a question and answer. A session with him through the news media, and then I had an opportunity to talk with him afterwards. Told him about my book. Uh, he was very concerned about how he played the character of Howard Hughes from my perspective, looking at me as kind of a an expert since I had worked both for the company and and also had written the book. Mm-hmm. And I thought he did a dynamite job. I thought he did extremely well. It, it was a hard part to play uh, because we're, he's playing a part of someone we all know. And it was also, uh, they make quite a case in the movie, they don't talk about it, but in his interviews and with me, uh, the feeling is that Hughes had this obsessive-compulsive disorder, OCD, at a time period when it probably wasn't diagnosed, maybe Hughes didn't even know he had it. And it was that that caused him to kind of descend into madness, as they say. I I agree that he was obsessive-compulsive. I saw that in his handling of aviation, of airplanes. But I personally think really it's, it was more the drugs and the head injuries that caused him to go downhill. Nevertheless, that was, I think, the challenge for DiCaprio was to play that part. It would be like if someone were to play the part of uh, President Reagan, as since he's a very public figure, we know him, but as he descended into Alzheimer, that would be a hard part to, to start to show that. Uh, and so I think that's what attracted him. I think he did an excellent job. I think they... There's a lot of aviation in there. It's not all, from a historical point of view, it's not all, you know, totally true. The, the, they have the Spruce Goose flying a little higher than it really did. And mm-hmm. They have the, in the XF-11 accident scene, they have him talking to people on the ground. He did not do that. Right. They have the, the, um, the racer flying 352 miles an hour as though he flew flight after, or pass after pass to get up to 352. That isn't the case. He made seven or eight passes in each direction, 
and it was the average so that you average out the the win so there's some corrections like that a guy like me would make but to most viewers uh, um, they wouldn't take exception to some small changes like that so I think it's a great movie it's two hours and 45 minutes an epic I think right up there with English patient and uh, uh, what's the uh, one that we always think of? Lawrence Arabia. Of Arabia. Uh, it's it's that that kind of music is great. Uh, it's a period piece. So there's old airplanes, there's old gowns, there's the coconut grove. Um, I think it's a dynamite movie. It, I think it ought to do quite well. Well, Martin Scorsese's film, The Aviator, opens nationwide on Saturday. It is based in part upon George Merritt's book, Howard Hughes, Aviator. We, uh, we appreciate you talking to Mr. Merritt and hope if the film uh, is up for Best Picture, you might come back and talk to us again. Oh, I'd be happy to do that. I hope Howard Hughes will be remembered as a result of my book and of the movie for his accomplishments in aviation and not for the weird person that he ended up. That's, that's my uh, hope in all of this. I'm Douglas Everett, this is Radio Parallax, and you're listening to KDVS 90.3 FM, Davis, Sacramento.